you, bud? I'm good. Good. You know the the um the title of this is Surgeons' Lives, but the subtitle is Stuff That Matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, uh, of course, it's um, great to talk to somebody about their uh, career success and go through their CV line by line. But um, uh, I'm uh, interested as much, if not more so, in what um, makes them tick and, you know, the buttons that they have to press, etc. And that varies from person to person. So I'm sure. delighted you've... Um, um, been able to spare some time for me. Sure. Uh, what I normally ask people to do, and I will not change the norm for you, is to just ask you to um, walk us through um, briefly um, the sort of life story, starting with the words, um, I was born in. Okay. Off you go. Okay. Off I'm you. Good. Okay. So I was born in Queens, New York. When I was three or four years old, my family moved to a town called uh, Oceanside. You know, both of my parents, you know, I was the first kid in my, there were five kids in my family. I was the first one to go to college and, you know, my parents and everyone in my neighborhood, it was the same story. Their parents, meaning all the grandparents were born somewhere not in this country. Yeah. You know, for example, I had a grandmother who was born in England, a grandfather who was born in Germany, a grandmother who was born in Poland, another one who was gra- a grandfather who was born in uh, Latvia. So the neighborhood I grew up when in was always where your mom and dad spoke English, but your grandparents spoke some foreign language and pretty broken English. And this was frankly the dream, you know, is that they all came to America really poor. And uh, their kids, meaning our parents, had gone to public school and were able to get a decent middle-class living, moved to a small house, you know, in um, on Long Island. You know, it was a, as I said, my very middle-class uh, neighborhood. I didn't want for anything. But as I said, I was the first kid to go to college. I will tell you that what, it, you know, less, I laugh at myself now because I didn't really know very much, but I ended up going to college to the University of Pennsylvania because my older brother, I was the middle of five kids, had a friend named Bill, and Bill had gone to college, and he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and he was a nice guy. So I really never went there, but I concluded that people at the University of Pennsylvania were nice guys because Bill was a nice guy. So that was probably my the reason why I went uh, to school there. <laughs> it's a reasonable assessment. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to uh, medical school again at the University of Vermont, really didn't know anything about Vermont. I thought that, you know, you went to medical school, you work hard, what difference does it make where you go? Um, but um, I thought everybody in Vermont lived in a log cabin. I'd never been really outside of a really the New York metropolitan area. So I thought it'd be fun to take care of people who, you know, rode sleds, sleds in the summer and, uh, you know, had that rural thing while I was in uh, medical school. Obviously, that's not uh, exactly uh, the case. Where did the... Um... Where did the doctoring come from? I mean, your dad wasn't a doctor. Uh, uh, Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, so that um, I can only tell you, John, that when I was a kid, there was nobody doing anything that I wanted to do. 
so that everyone is the same. All our dads, you know, got on, got in the car, drove to the train station, took the train into the city, worked for somebody who lived in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, um, and they came, you know, he came home exhausted every night, sat in the chair, made noises. You couldn't talk to him. You know, I loved him. Don't get me wrong. He certainly did the best he could, but only knew I didn't want to do that. And so when I was in college, I started as a psychology major and then shifted to being a philosophy major, which is still an interest of mine. And then um, I kind of was thinking maybe I'd get an advanced degree in psychology, but my advisor, and again, I didn't know anything, told me that it's not going to be let's talk to people anymore. It's going to be all medications. So you should go to medical school. At the last sort of minute, I applied to medical school to psychiatrists. Interesting. Um, and so when you went into medical school, uh, uh, um, you surgery was not top of the radar, or I'm not sure that there is such a thing as top of the radar, but it was not on your radar screen. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I did surgery as the first rotation because it had a reputation. It was three months then of being brutal and gruesome. And I didn't want to dread it the whole year. So I did it first to get it over with. So I wouldn't have to be fearful of it the whole rest of the year. And um, and and was it dreadful? You know, no, I mean, I, I didn't conclude that, oh, I want to be a surgeon after yeah. the rotation. It had its moments that was good. It's moments where I was exhausted because there was no such thing as work hour restrictions back then. Um, but, um, you know, what happened is I started with that and my conclusion wasn't, oh, I want to be a surgeon, is that I thought this was going to be three months of torture and it was only intermittently torture. And uh, then I did internal medicine and I was just as miserable as a human being could be. You know, it was like, doesn't anybody here want to do anything? You know, that's all we do is talk and round. Doesn't anybody want to make sick people better? And, uh, you know, just my own personal uh, take on it. So as the year went on, John, I couldn't have articulated what I was doing at that time because I wasn't smart enough. But, you know, now, like when I talk to medical students, I realized that what I was doing is the process was a search for your people that people who see the world the way you see it, that have values, you know, so I guess the way surgery is, is that in terms of what I wanted to do, of course, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And if not that, then a professional basketball player. But it turns out that there's not um, a big role for, say, a 5'11 point guard who takes about three hours to get up and down the court and has a three-inch yeah. vertical leap. So, when I was about 15 or 16, uh, I realized that I was going to have to get a job uh, like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say it, it's not just the five foot eleven; it's the it's the other components as well uh, that you require. <laughs> yes, that that's right. You have to be able to shoot the ball and it go in the basket periodically. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and and so during this early formative period, I mean, your original interest is in psychiatry. Did you do any psychiatry rotations? And uh, what happened when you did? Was it um, wasn't was it less than you anticipated? Well, you know, it's back to the point before about searching for your people. Within about five minutes of the rotation, I concluded that the doctors were even nuttier than the patients were. Yeah. You know, and so I said, you know, I didn't recognize it as such but i at some level i said these are not my people this is not a world you know that i want to live in and so um 
you know, that's sort of when it went one thing led to another and sort of small steps that I ultimately came to the realization that surgery was my people. Yeah, I, I remember um, doing uh, my psychiatry rotation in, in Dublin and um, a, um, a, a, psychi a psychiatric nurse said to me, and presumably she'd been saying this to people for years, you know, and which was the question was, what's the difference between uh, the psychiatrist and the patient? And she had two answers to this. One was that the psychiatrist wore a name badge. Um, <laughs> and the other, the other one that she had was that some of the patients get better. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that the, the the psychiatrist has two extra initials after his or her name. Yeah. No, I think she was. She certainly would have believed, like you, that some of the psychiatrists were nuttier than the patients, you know, yeah. um, etc. So, so ultimately, surgery became the thing. Um, and so, um, where did you go for surgery? So I did my uh, general surgery residency uh, at Mount Sinai in New York City. And then your um, colorectal emerged? At, yes, uh, I'll come back to that in a second. So I did my fellowship or colorectal residency uh, at the Cleveland Clinic under uh, Vic Fazio. But um, in, during my surgery residency, I started my first year as a surgical oncologist. I was a transplanter as a two and three I was a vascular surgeon as a four and then colorectal sort of towards the end. And, um, you know, as you know, Mount Sinai, if you, you know, like where I work now at the University of Chicago, very much the same in the sense that if you didn't have Crohn's disease, when you pulled into the parking lot, you were going to have it by the time you yeah. parked your car. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we were surrounded by IBD and the history with Crohn and everything. And then very importantly, um, uh, the sort of the first colorectal trained person at Mount Sinai was Randy Steinhagen. And so when I started my residency, Randy was the brand new young swashbuckling, you know, uh, surgeon. And we all, you know, I can't tell you how many people who did their residency at Mount Sinai after me, you know, because of Randy, you know, went into colorectal surgery. Again, the value of mentorship and uh, role models. He's just, just a wonderful guy. And, you know, Phil Fleshner was a started, you know, went into was a year after me. And, you know, it started a steady stream of people who wanted to be like Randy. Yeah. And and in the mix there somewhere was Barry Salky. Yes. And, you know, certainly Barry, you know, there were a lot of, you know, wonderful uh, people. So Barry, you, you know, what was nice about Barry is he's the only uh, surgeon that I know personally at that time, non-gynecologist who was doing laparoscopy yeah. at that time. Yeah. And so, you know, when we finished our residency as a sort of a funny thing, it was like I finished my residency in 1989 and then Lap Coley comes out like the next year. And it's like, really? You know what I mean? I just learned, you know, what I mean, all of these things you're saying that I'm going to have to sort of relearn surgery, but, you know, it was very nice. And Barry did a lot of laparoscopy. He did them under local anesthesia, generally with nitrates. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we knew how to do laparoscopy from Barry Salty. Yeah. And he, um, he did one of these interviews with me and um, it was interesting. We, we shared that experience of when I was, a resident in the mid 80s i worked with a guy who did a lot of local anesthetic laparoscopy um yeah. so so just like barry 
when laparoscopy came along in the late 80s, early 90s, the one strength I had was that I knew how to put the ports in. Um, yeah. And that, that that was a real struggle for a lot of people. Um, yeah. you know, they ran into trouble, et cetera. So it's, uh, it is interesting how, um, you know, doing them under local, you know, getting the patient to cough on three as you put the various needle in and stuff like that. Um, it, it was quite, I mean, there was nothing you could do when you looked in really, you know, um, but you, we did a lot of diagnostic sort of stuff. So Cleveland Clinic in the days of uh, Vic and Ian Lavery, et cetera, et cetera, um, set you on a career um, which went back to Vermont? I did. So after I finished my fellowship, sort of another perhaps humorous story is that we had our first kid when I was a fellow in uh, 1990. And Dr. Alsis, who was the chief of surgery at Mount Sinai, had offered me a job to come back. And, you know, I just want to give him, if I might, a little bit of a shout out, because it was an era where the chief at Einstein had made the chief residents drink urine. You know what I mean? That Dr. Spencer at NYU, you know, it was like the nastier, the rougher you were, you're making real men or real women, whatever it is. You know, Dr. Alphysis was a gentleman. And um, I'll tell you, I don't know how you feel, John, but I respond much better to the gentleman because if you you know, want to be a jerk, I'm just going to think you're a jerk, you know what I mean? And I'll do what I have to do to get along with you, but you're not going to be my hero. Whereas um, Dr. Alphysis, as an example, we were all worried, uh, it's hard to probably imagine for people now, but that he, the chief of surgery was going to make you cut your hair really short. And that was an era where we wanted our hair pretty long. And he was a relatively short-haired guy, and he comes in and he looks at the ranks of us you know, when we're starting and I say, oh, God, please don't tell me that we all have to get short haircuts like you. And he looked at us and he said, I choose to wear my hair short. He said, you're adults, you wear your hair, how are you going to wear it? He said, all I ask you to do is every day when you wake up, before you come to work, look in the mirror and imagine your grandmother sees somebody like that who looks like that taking care of them when they're really sick. If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. And that's exactly the kind of thing I respond to, you know, what I view as yeah. righteousness yeah. or, you know, er earnestness. And um, so anyway, he had offered me a job to come back and, you know, I was doing the formal uh, interview and I can expand on this sort of a little humorous story there. But anyway, um, we came out from on Fifth Avenue. It was a time where a lot of radios were getting stolen. And um, uh, my wife had worked as a dietitian at Sinai. So she knew a lot of the dietitians. And she was, you know, we had come together sort of from Vermont. And she, she um, you know, was showing the baby around. And when we came back to the car, there were these big panes of glass. Someone had broken in the, the glass to take the car, you know, the big panes of glass in the car seat. And we said, hmm. And right around the same time, Steve Shackford, who was the new chief of surgery at UVM, had called me. And I told him I wasn't looking for a job, but she, my wife had gone to undergrad at UVM, University of Vermont, and also was a native New Yorker like me, and said that, uh, you know, maybe we ought to look there. And, and we did. And that's sort of how it happened. But there is one other anecdote, John, that I, you know, um, I think is humorous about that when, you know, he told me, ba-bang, ba-bang, ba-bang. And when I spoke to Dr. Alfsis, you know, it's just, I think it's useful in terms of the history of the old chairs. Um, I came out after my 45 minute visit with him 
And I got asked, you know, I get home and she says, so there's three hospitals, the university hospital, there's a VA in the Bronx, there's a city hospital in Queens, where are you going? I don't know. Well, where are you going to see patients? I got to know where we're going to live. I don't know. What position will you have? What rank or title? I don't know. Well, you have nine bazillion dollars in debt. You know, we're poor as could be. Yeah. How much money are you going to make? I don't know. She's like, what the hell did you talk about? You know, but it really, now that I think back on yeah. it, he was saying that he was going to take care of me. And I trusted him and I knew he would. Yeah, that, I was once, um, uh, they tried to recruit me to go and work in a Boston, well-known Boston hospital um, a number of years ago. And um, I, I asked the... Uh, I asked the esteemed leader of everything, I said, where does one live in Boston? And he said, you get in a car and you drive on the Massachusetts Turnpike out of Boston. And when you can afford a house, you stop. <laughs> <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> so, um, suffice to say, I did not go to Boston. Um, so, um, so I, when you were there now you were you ended up in vermont um what uh, what did you see for neil hyman what was the vision or, or was there a vision were you just trying to establish yourself or you know what when you when you were alone and dreaming what did what was the dream right well the nice thing was that um i was the first you know and only colorectal surgeon that had ever been in vermont or new hampshire so that I wasn't going to have to wait, you know what I mean? I was going to be doing the stuff I felt trained to do right off. So that was nice professionally. But, you know, I think the more important thing is that when my son was born, I knew right away who I was. I was his father. And, you know, I was going to be, I was very focused on giving him, you know, the best quality of life and growing up uh, in the best place. And, you know, next kid comes, say, same thing. So it's sort of uh, an interesting aspect that um, made, you know, turned out to which I didn't think would ever work out is I just really wanted to be, you know, a good father and committed to them and uh, my family. And so I didn't think I was going to ever have any sort of leadership position or academic respectfully and frankly, it just wasn't important to me. You know, and that sort of how things work, and I'll often point this out to our trainees, is I just said, you know, I just want to make an honest living. I want to do the best I can to take care of my patients. You know, if people notice it, fine. If they don't notice it, fine. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I'm not going to care about who the Grig Hoo-Ha is and any political considerations. And so I thought I was completely, quote, giving up, unquote, any you know, career advancement uh, possibilities. But, you know, as you know, John, and you know, that the world turns and the person who's on at the bottom, you know, becomes on top and things change and people remember that you didn't stab them in the back, that you didn't push them out under the, you didn't throw them under the bus. And, you know, people, you know, as the world turns, people may get mad at you in the beginning for not sharing their position and not jumping on the bandwagon, but, I think in the long term, people sort of say, like, I think I can probably trust that guy. You know what I mean? I think he may not always be right, but he's trying to do the right thing. I bet I could use a fellow like that or a lady like that. Yeah. I think that so anything I've had, you know, it's not like I had any 
patrons. You know, I was way up in Vermont, but I just thought that, you know, it, if somebody asks you to do something, you do it the best you can and you do it honestly and you treat people, you know, honestly and earnestly. And who knew? But ultimately, over time, not that I was so much interested in it, but people recognized it. And um, I got yeah, to and you, uh, you know, you did rise to the top um and um you know became president of of the relevant uh specialty society etc um you know which is a journey in itself i mean it's uh, it doesn't happen overnight um and requires requires a skill set i mean other than being a nice guy um it does require a, a skill set and you know there are those people as you say who who don't who don't have political ambition as you know it's not written on their the whiteboard in their kitchen um and there are those people for whom it is written on their whiteboard and in the kitchen um presumably it's just because the way their mind works they you know they need to have a clarity strategy etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't you know uh, i don't necessarily think one is 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 um more valuable than the other um and one's one's a little more obvious than the other but um so how did you learn um the skill sets to um progress beyond um the normal statements that you know if i'm chosen to serve of course i will be happy etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's like anybody who asks a politician in the UK, if they would like to be prime minister, of course, they always say, of course not, you know, but that's never been my ambition. On the other hand, if I was ever asked to serve, you know, blah, 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 you know, they have to say that. Um, but it, you, there must have been an ambition at some point in there. Yeah, no, I, you know that. So I was at the University of Vermont, you know, I was happy there, very busy doing tons of cases. And um you know, at the end of the day, um, I guess, you know, maybe you'd ask him, Steve Shackford, who was the chair for, you know, almost most of my time there, you know, asked me, would I be the chief of general surgery, which I hadn't thought about. And I didn't even know if I wanted to do it. But anyway, as I started getting exposed to leadership positions, you know, I guess because I'm not the brightest guy that there is, is I sort of said, wow, this this good stuff about this, you know, that you can make the right thing happen for mm -hmm. the right people. And um, I guess this is pretty corny, but I realized that, you know, back to, you know, whatever it is, right or wrong, my sense of right and wrong is that I liked that, for example, people who were coming up behind me, I could defend them, protect them, encourage them. And so I liked the idea that with some responsibility comes some power and you can use that power and responsibility to make, you know, uh, to try and make things the right thing happen. And, and that's always, you know, what I've liked. And believe me, not that anyone would say, oh, I want Hyman to be the chair or surge, but I always knew that this level, you know, the division chief level, I never would want to do more than that because it doesn't, you know, I, I've not been interested, you know, sort of, um, there's just too much, um, you know, bureaucracy and too much, you know, stuff, you know, to be chair, you know, that would be not that it's wrong, but it'd be well beyond yeah. my taste. And I'm a doctor. And so I don't mind having the 20 to 30%, you know, where I can focus on my guys, but more than that would have made me unhappy. 
But you then proceeded, albeit within the specialty of colorectal, to devote that additional time as 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 became necessary, you know, going up through the, the ranks of the society. Um, and, um, you know, that that's a difficult balancing act, isn't it? You're, you're now, you've now got several balls in the air. You know, you've got family, you've got practice, you've got administrative duties, and now society work, etc. Did it come naturally to you, or 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 was it a challenge? Yeah, you know, it it really did. And perhaps this is a little tangential, but for example, you know, I was talking to one of the residents just a little while ago who was getting married this weekend, and I was saying, you know, just don't worry about where Aunt Tessie sits. You know what I mean? Just people should recognize this is your day, this is your wedding, and anybody who is focused about where do I sit or am I at the right table, it's, they're not, it's, that's not the right thing to do. And so that's how I felt, you know, the whole time. I definitely care and I respect people, but at the end of the day, I don't leave pieces of myself all over the place. Like, in other words, I try and make the best decision that I can, but, you know, I don't call 500 people, you know what I mean, to try and smooth things over. So, you know, at the end of the day, I just did what I thought seemed right after you know, getting the right amount of input. So I didn't really spend a lot of time on, I guess, what I'll call the political uh, aspect of it. So it really wasn't bad, John. And so I'm not, you know, right to criticize me. I like to be inclusive, but I'm not a sensitive person. Sure. You know, in other words, if you tell me that I've done the wrong thing, I'll listen to you. I care, but I won't, you know, be okay. Now I hate Monson. You know what I mean? John's a bad guy. So I think not being sensitive and not personalizing things and little leaving pieces of myself all over the hospital or all over ASCRS headquarters helps. You know, um, when you became president, um, you you inherited, you walked into something of a firestorm that was developing around the world at that time, which I will loosely refer to. And so please don't um, criticize me for being inaccurate, but would, would be loosely referred to as what grew into the Me Too movement. Um, and I, I was impressed, um, speaking as an old white guy, um, to another old white guy, um, that you dealt with it in a way that was both um, defensive, as in def you were able to defend yourself as an old white guy, um, yet opened up the dialogue. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how you how you thought about that at the time? Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of how I approach everything is that legitimately I really do want, you know, it's, we should be inclusive. I really want sure. women to have all the opportunities. I really, it's wrong. You know, a woman shouldn't have to deal with that garbage, right? That when we were young, yeah, I never thought that was right. So in other words, that people say politically correct and to be forthright, I felt most of those things were correct, not just politically correct, that a woman should be able to be respected as a colleague and come in and do her job, you know, without being hassled and people of color should be included but, 
you know, what I, you know, in fairness, you know, so that as an old white guy, I think you hear things that whether it's a, a race issue that somebody who's of color wouldn't necessarily hear. So that when I sent my, you know, initial um, message, if you will, around saying that DEI was going to be an important thing, you know, that I heard, you know, a lot of, you know, our colleagues called me up and said, stop being so PC. You know, we have women in our group. We have people of color in our group. And so it became plainly evident to me that they didn't get it. They were good mm -hmm. people. They just didn't get it. You know what I mean? That it wasn't a meanness or a personality defect. They just didn't, weren't able to put themselves in the shoes of the people who had been excluded. But on the other hand, you know, people were mad at me and said, we I, for example, one person said that A.S. Asgar should write a letter to the United Nations. You know what I mean? Indicating that America is a racist country, you know, et cetera. And whatever the truth may be of that, you know, I sort of, um, you know, felt that. And, and I want to be very clear about what I mean by stay in our lane. I really felt we should stay in our lane what I mean by that is not that we have no interest in DEI issues, but let's not be showboats. You know, do you really think the United Nations, when they make policy, says, I wonder what Ascars thinks about this? You know, that let's do something meaningful. You know, so how do we include people? So I made the Tracy Hull had made, you know, a task force on DEI. Since, you know, I made them a committee. I joined all their calls because I really wanted to know what they thought. I, I knew I had some gaps that needed education. The other thing is that I thought that let's do something meaningful. Stay in your lane doesn't mean not DEI, but let's do something meaningful. So we talked about that every time we go to a city for ASCARS, let's support the community health center and do, you know, foster screening. Let's do a screening program for colorectal cancer. So let's not be smoke and mirrors. Let's do, let's be the yeah. real deal. Yeah. And so that being said, you know, that um, the committee, I asked Wayne Tuxen is a buddy of mine for whatever you know, for a long time. And he was great to me when I was a fellow. I asked him to clear the committee because I wanted another old guy like me. And, you know, frankly, I learned so Wayne and I were all about let's do actions. Let's not make speeches. But I realized quickly that I had a blind spot there that I it was very clear to me that a lot of the younger people, the words matter a lot to them. You know what I mean? Like I personally don't care about the words. I want to see, let's, you know, I'm a talk is cheap kind of guy, but the words did matter. So I, I got educated and, you know, but at the end of the day, I didn't want to do, I think there's way too much smoke and mirrors, you know what I mean? That to try and be the, the, the biggest hero or whatever without sincerity. And so, you know, to me, as I really want I I did care about it and I wanted to be authentic about it. It's, uh, I was at Sages last week, um, and which I hadn't been to for a couple of years because of COVID, etc. And I was standing there during a coffee break talking to um, uh, an old colleague who's a surgeon in, in Florida, actually. But I first met him in England. He's originally from Iraq. And he's been in uh, the U.S. for um, about the same length of time as me, actually. He worked in England. He worked in uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I was staring out, I was looking out across the group of people, um, at, you know, at coffee. And it, it, it struck me very forcibly um, what a diverse group I was looking at um, in terms of age. Um, you know, a lot of extremely young, 
um, people, every shade of color, ethnicity, gen, you know, gender, the whole thing. And I, I thought to myself, uh, you know, whatever Sages has done, um, and of course it has a different history, it's a more recent thing and it's a more general surgery thing as well. But in terms of this, it's done a great job in terms of the membership. And I, But I was chatting to this friend of mine and I said, you know, you and I are both immigrants. Um, it's just that you and, uh, you know, he knows me well enough to know that I wasn't saying anything insulting to him. He said, I, I said, you know, you look and sound like an immigrant, whereas I don't necessarily. And I, uh, my point was that, um, you know, he can have a conversation um, different to the conversation that I can have. Um, because people, you know, the world over, people don't like different, you know, uh, that's a, you know, it's, it's the source of conflict everywhere, whether it's people blowing each other up in Ireland or, you know, the Yugoslavian states, etc. People different is the challenge, really. Um, the question is, can you have the conversations now? And uh, that's why I, I asked you that, because, uh, you know, it's it's learning what the, the words matter, don't they? They do. And, and that's sort of what I mean by authentic is, you know, frankly, rightly or wrongly, I'm, I'm comfortable actually having the conversations and they didn't bother me because I really wanted to learn. I really wanted mm -hmm. to get it right. And, um, you know, so that being said, like even here at the University of Chicago, we're in South Chicago, you know, I'm always pushing back on the DEI, you know, you know, efforts in the sense of like, let's stop trying to win trophies. You know what I mean? Let's make a difference. You know what I mean? Let's not just say this is the trophy giver. You know what I mean? So you want to support, say, you know, women's careers. Let's focus on the young women, you know what I mean? Making things welcoming, even though they don't give the trophies. You know, let's not just focus on who's the head of something, you know. So, you know, that's what I mean by authentic um, and sincere. Yeah. I mean, I think we really want to really make it as welcoming as we can. And you're right. And you know, John, I went when we had Ascars, I think it was the next year, you know, there was a small, it was in a big tour, it wasn't actually well attended at Ascars, you know, the DEI session. And just what you said, you know, somebody who was, you know, not born in this country, you know, who said, you know, you're focusing on this group. What about, you know, foreign trained surgeons who look like me? I don't feel included too. And mm -hmm. he's right. You know what I mean? And I just think we need to to listen. And um, you know, everyone has unconscious bias. There's sure. not it's not re restricted to old white guys. You know what yeah, I mean? Everybody no, no, sure. unconscious yeah. bias that we live our lives, we make observations, they're not all accurate. And mm -hmm. we make generalizations that are not correct. And we all do it. And I, I yeah. just think that it really isn't a stigmatizing thing. It's just something yeah. we all have to be aware of and, and work on all the time. Yeah, for sure. So then out of the blue, um, to the untrained eye anyway, out of the blue, you um, moved to Chicago. Um, what, about seven years ago, something like that? Yeah, it was about uh, eight or nine years ago. And again, believe me, I'm not saying that every day somebody would call me up and say, hey, do you want to come to this leadership position? But um you know, as you know, I've always been interested. A big part of my practice has always been IBD surgery. I love IBD. I love IBD surgery. I love, you know, love IBD patients. 
And uh, so when I got the call from the university, usually when I get the call, you know, right, we know through the network who might be movable. And I would say this one, that one, the other one. So they called me and I was going into my this one, that one and the other one, you know, you may want to call. And they said, well, no, we were sort of hoping you would take a, a look at it. And I was saying, and I really did feel this way. I've got the best job in the country. I'm not leaving Burlington, you know, Vermont. But, you know, there were a number of personal professional factors that came into it. And, you know, uh, when you're interested in IBD and the University of Chicago calls where everyone has IBD, you at least take the call. And, uh, you know, so there were a variety of personal and professional factors that led to it. And now, um, I think it's generally known that you're retiring. Yes. Um, so how did you make that, um, uh, you know, Rob Madoff tell, you know, described that, you know, that he, you know, he came to the decision to retire, retire, retire um, pretty quickly. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a three-year plan and, you know, you know, there's a guy who lived his entire life, not really, but you know what I mean, in Minnesota, and now is um, as happy as he can be sitting in Brooklyn. Um, up, gone, done. Um, um, what, how, was, how was the decision process for you and, and what were the factors? Yeah, well, you know, um, these just we all have our own perspectives. You know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the suck on suck on this podcast, but I never wanted to suck, you know, meaning that I never wanted to be that guy where you're walking behind the residence and they sort of said, oh, we got to scrub with the old fella again. We got to orient him to person, you know. So in other words, I always had it very much in my mind that it wasn't about me. It was about the patients, the residents, you know, that one, I didn't feel I was uh, doing the right thing that I would want to to quit. So Pete Cataldo, who I love, what a joy it was working with him for all those years at the Vermont. We always used to have this pact that as soon as we think the other one sucks, we're going to tell them so that they can stop <laughs> working. So, you know, I, I knew he would do that and I definitely would have done it for him. He's a phenomenal surgeon. But um, in any case, um, that that was always a thing. So I was always had that consciousness that I didn't want to stay around too long. And right, we all see people who stay around too Very long um, and, you know, make comments and conferences that are not relevant. And there was a past president, John, that our, I think our young people wouldn't know, but Sam Labo, who was a past president of Ascars, maybe, geez, the better part of 30 years ago, um, we're still friends, Sam and I, and he gave this great talk on retirement that I've always remembered and I'm extrapolating it. And he would look in the, say, if you look in the mirror and see Dr. Monson, don't retire, but if you look in the mirror and see John, you'll be fine. And that's how I, and I think Robbie's the same way, you know, is that I'm Neil, you know what I mean? Like in my personal life, not that there's anything wrong with it. I don't introduce myself as Dr. Hyman. Yeah. You know, I don't make a reservation as Dr. This, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I'm saying I, it has nothing to do with my identity as a human being. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I'm Neil and you know what I mean? I won't miss, you know, any of the trappings or privilege, whatever, about the surgeon or doctor uh, uh, title. And, um, you know, so I, I felt like it's time. I'm a big fan of they give you that microphone. You know, you sing the best you can. And then when your time's up, you hand it over to the next person. And you don't linger around backstage like a stage mother telling everybody, well, back in my day, you just get off, leave the building. 
you know, and you know, pass the torch. I've always, and this is probably grossly offensive, but I've always thought, <laughs> which you, you know, you, you, you would expect of me, I'm sure. Um, but I've always thought that one of the reasons um, American doctors value their white coats so much with the name um, here is because they're terrified somebody will not realize they're a doctor. Because, um, you know, I'm, I've never, I never introduced myself to patients as Dr. Monson. I, I always say, hi, I'm John Monson. Because if they don't know who you are and you're a doctor, you've got a bigger problem than just not using your title. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I have no problem with it. I mean, people, you've earned it. You've respect, you know, I respect yeah. it. I'm just saying there's not, I don't have any, you know, I'm not saying that I think it's the right thing. I'm just saying it's the right thing for me. It doesn't sure. do anything yeah. for me, but people have earned it. They can where, you know, say whatever they want to say, introduce themselves however <laughs> they wish. What are you going to do with yourself? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I've already told you what I don't want to do. You know what I mean? I don't want to be a hanger around or who, you know, I kid around, you know, John, that I'm in my office now that when people are in, you walk onto the floors and, or will you walk through the academic uh, offices and people see you, they shut the light off and hide under the desk. Hyman's going to come in and tell me more of his war stories. So I'll be 30 minutes late home. I don't want to be that guy. So as I said, um, but um, having said that, um, there's a lot of personal interests that I have that I would like to pursue. And um, rather than necessarily having a job, you know, if you will, there's a couple of things that are meaningful to me. Uh, one is any way I can support IBD management, you know what I mean? Um, without, again, I'm not, not that I want to have a job or a position, yeah, but yeah. I would be interested in something that advances the IBD field. And the other thing is that, uh, I guess I'm going to open a Pandora's box here, is that I feel that on my 33 years or whatever it is since I finished my training, that things have gotten bad for young surgeons. Like I love my guys, you know what I mean? And I think that it, I don't want to say it's not fair to say it sucks being a surgeon, but there are aspects of it that have clearly deteriorated under my watch, you know, meaning that while I was yeah. doing this yeah. and I think these, they're my heroes, these young guys, they're the best, they're the best and the brightest of their generation. They're honest, they're hardworking. And it often boils down to a no good deed goes unpunished. And I think with the corporatization of uh, medicine, I think that, uh, and, and with many leaders in surgeries, not picking on anybody who make the devil's deal and they agree to manage and message, you know, their people yeah. to maintain their position of power. I think they, there's just not enough people who acknowledge how wonderful they are and are helping them. And so if there's opportunity, you know, I'm also would be interested in pursuing opportunities to call things again, authentic the way they, the way they are. Because is this that, that no administrator will ever know what it's like, like we all do, getting into bed every night, making rounds in your head, thinking, yeah. does that fever meet anything? You know what I mean? These guys are, you know, are these youngsters, they're heroes to me. And so it's, I don't, um, yeah, I'm sorry. So they no, need to be treated <clears> like that because they are, they are heroes. The world is a much better place because they're in it. And people sure. need to tell them that and stand up for them. So it's it's as though you read my script because you know I ask people what changes they've seen for good or worse. <clears throat> There's a general consensus um, amongst people that I've interviewed 
that things are worse for the younger people now. But to from your eyes, in what way specifically are they worse? Yeah, I, I think the lack of appreciation, you know, I had this slide that I showed in my presidential talk, is that from when I started in medicine, there are now 32 administrators for every one, meaning somebody who has nothing to never sees or touches a patient for every one. And so I call it the fantasy football league. You know, I have, you know, maybe not a foot, but a few toes in the C-suite, you know, if you will. And what I've seen since COVID, before COVID, it was like, they have no idea what's going on. And, it, you know, now they have no idea and it doesn't matter because yeah. they created this little imaginary fantasy football league where they make where they define imaginary problems. They solve them and it's completely disconnected from the playing field to, to yeah. what's yeah. going on. So it's, you know, I don't know anything about finding almost like Bitcoin. You know, it's like imaginary. It's just <laughs> like a whole fantasy football league. You know, there's no there there. And I think nobody. That, um... The good thing is that nobody knows anything about Bitcoin, you know, so. Me too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in the time we have left, uh, I want to um, ask you a few, uh, a few things. So these are a few sort of random questions. So what would you tell the young Neil Hyman starting out um, about things that you might want to do differently? Yeah, so... I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but one thing looking back that if I might, that I did well, I always put my family first. It was a no brainer. You know what I mean? And so I am very close with my, my sons are in their thirties. We're very, they both live in Chicago. You know, we're very close and um, you know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I would advise you can love your job, but your job will never love you back. Mm. And your kids don't care about your CV. Yeah. You know, so my kids never had any idea what I did, you know, what I mean, meaning they know now, of course, that I'm a doctor and a surgeon. But when they were young, there was no not that there's anything wrong with it, but there was no doctor talk. They only knew that I was their dad. I never missed their hockey games, you know, parent teacher. You know what I mean? I round my patients knew Hyman must the kid must have a hockey game because he's rounding at 245 in the morning. But you do what you have to do to get there. And I wouldn't um, have, have changed uh, that. And similarly, you know, um, I don't know, it's just one person's experience, but I've always felt feel good that I'm not saying I've always it's always I've always done it, but I've always tried to do the right thing. I've always tried to, you know, not use people as a means to an end, you mm -hmm. know, to, to some personal end. So, you know, I mean, I, and that helps has always helped me uh, sleep at night. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, that that you know you you make real friends because you just have to be careful not to make conditional friends meaning friends that are based on your mutual positions because you won't have them forever sure. you know be a good person make real friends how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered yeah i it sounds terrible but i don't expect to be remembered you know what I mean? Meaning that, you know, I think that's a little bit of delusional. The world, you know, you're here, the world, you know, right? The world's indispensable. You know, I still remember, you know, um, I, I don't know how you feel, John, but I can't even think of anybody who ever approached the stature that Vic Fazio had. You know what I mean? As a rock star, you'd be at Asgard's, it'd be people lined up to get a picture with him, to for him to sign a book or something like that. You know what I mean? And he's gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. And those of us who revere him, keep his memory alive, but you know, it's transient. You know what I mean? And I, 
I, I hope that doesn't sound terrible, but I'm often told that you know, I have a cabin in Vermont that people say that I'd be happy to be found there, you know, on the front porch 30 years after I passed, you know, so I don't have any expectation of being remembered. Uh, per I think se. it's, um, you know, uh, at the very beginning of my career, I, I had a fleeting engagement with John Gallagher who, you know, was a legend from a previous generation. He was the legend along with Rube Turnbull, um, et cetera. But it is a reality that there's a generation of surgeons now who have never heard of these people. Um, and, you know, as an old boss of mine once said to me many years ago, you, you know, outside of being a genius, and as he said, there's nobody in this room called Mozart, um, he said, uh, the only people that remember you are your students and your patients, and that's as it should be, you know, um, and your family, hopefully. Sure. <laughs> so now, um, the, we will finish, um, by me asking you a series of, of very cheesy, quick questions, um, for which there is no time to think of an answer. There is no right answer other than the fact that I, I know what the right answer is, um, and you just have to answer them. I have already had to remove one of my common ones, which is um, uh, in relation to um, Yankees versus Red Sox, um, because I know that's not a choice for you. Um, and I have it's been sitting no watching you. I've been sitting good, looking John, at I'm you. sorry to interrupt you, but it's good versus evil. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> So I've been sitting, um, looking at you, trying to work out um, who that is uh, in the picture um, of the Yankees. And I'm thinking to myself, is that Andy Pettit or is it um, uh, Mariana Rivera? That's Der Derek Jeter. Oh, Derek Jeter. It's not, it's, it doesn't do him justice. Um, yeah. And it's a little backwards. It may look like he's a he he's a lefty. Actually, one but when I left Vermont my last week, one of my patients gave me that. Ah, very nice. Okay, here we go. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Um, um, Burger King or McDonald's? McDonald's. PC or Mac? Uh, Mac. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Beer or wine? Beer. Home or away? Home. Here we go. Neil, it's been a great pleasure um, talking to you. Um, and I hope you've um, I hope you've not found it a total waste of your time. Um, and uh, we shall see um, what the assembled millions or masses of millions of viewers <laughs> think of this. But it's been a great pleasure. It's been a, a pleasure um, getting to know you over the years. And um, I wish you well in whatever you want to do um, in the coming years. Well, thank you, John. It was a pleasure and always delightful to spend time with you. And thank you for the honor and privilege of uh, talking to me. I didn't know anyone in the world would ever care what I would think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess when it goes out, we will find out. Right. And I don't like to brag or anything, but I'll be really interested when you tell me, you know, Neil, I'm really sorry to tell you there were zero views. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right, Neil, thank you so much. All right, buddy.